Sorry, Dylan. Okay, there we are. We're, now we're alive. Well, the question I was going to ask you is I wonder if there's anybody here who likes vacations. Anybody here like vacations? Okay, so we've got some normal people in the room today. I'm very happy. And I wonder, what is it about vacations that we like? Uh, we like rest, right? We, we might like uh, to relax a little bit. I think we all like to relax at least sometimes. Uh, recreation, sometimes we like to do things on vacation. Uh, you know, I, I think there's something about vacation that's good for us, right? It's, it's good to have a, a break. It's good to have a time where we can rest, we can get uh, relaxation. It's good to have seasons of our time that allow us to be renewed, in a sense. Our bodies need that. I think our minds need that as we go about our lives. So I think there's a, there's a very good reason for us to go on vacation. So I hope you had an opportunity to go on vacation uh, over the summertime. And, uh, you know, what I, I think that's cool about vacations is when you come back, well, that's actually not a cool thing because you're, you're all bummed that your vacation's over, right? But at the end of vacations, you do have an opportunity for a fresh start. You've had this natural break in your life. You have a fresh start, an opportunity to have a kind of new beginning. Now, whether or not you actually went on a vacation or not, or you can resonate with this at all, maybe you at least can have a thought of what a fresh start might mean. What do you want a fresh start for in your life? What might it be good to have a new beginning in? We all have things in our life where it would just be nice to say, oh, I just want to start over and start fresh. Well, this morning we're going to start a new sermon series in the Old Testament book of Ezra. So in a sense, that's a fresh start for us as a church. We've been in Acts for a very long time. We took a little break uh, and did a couple sermons in Proverbs. Today we're going to open up the Old Testament book of Ezra. And a big idea in this book is one of a fresh start, a new beginning for the people of God. And indeed for us, it's a fall season where there's fresh opportunities for us as individuals, as people, as a church. So I think Ezra will be particularly encouraging for us as a church. So if you will, um, I invite you, if you have a Bible with you or around you, you should have at least a hardback black one located around your seat back somewhere. Um, find those and open up to Ezra chapter 1. Ezra chapter 1, we're going to read verses 1 through 4 today. Uh, if you're using one of those hardback black Bibles, you can find our passage on page 389. If you're here and you don't own a copy of the Bible, we love to give Bibles away. Uh, as you came in today, you might have noticed there's bookshelves in the, in the welcome area back there. There's some hardback black Bibles that are similar to the ones you might have around you. Uh, those are open for you to take, take with you. Or if you have a friend you know needs a Bible, feel, feel free to take one of those, hand them off. We like to give Bibles away. It's good for us all to be engaged with the Word of God as much as we can. So. Hopefully you've made it to Ezra chapter 1. If you haven't, I think it'll be up behind me. So join me as we read Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. 
Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So I've graciously been given four verses to start off the sermon series in Ezra, and I'm very grateful for that. So uh, what I would like to do, at least in this initial sermon in Ezra, is to do a sort of a building project. That's what this sermon will be, and in fact, it's what happens in Ezra. It's where I got that image from, if you wondered. Uh, we're going we're gonna to build a foundation. That's what the idea is for today. I want us to have a good introduction to Ezra, so we're going to kick off the bat. I'm just going to introduce this book to you. Um, here's what we're going to do. I don't know if you've ever seen a house being built, but uh, particularly in New England, we like to build basements, right, because it gets cold. We like to have more square footage in our house, so there's basements, right? So we're going to dig down a little bit. We're going to level out our ground. We're going to uh, build, build a form for our concrete fittings. We're going to pour the concrete and maybe reinforce it with some rebar, and we'll be set to study this book of Ezra. That's my goal today. We're going to build this thing from the bottom. And so the idea, the big idea of Ezra, what happens in the book of Ezra is indeed a return from exile. That's what the people of Israel are doing, and that's what we're, we're going to title this whole series, A Return from Exile. That's what happens in Ezra. Now, Ezra, in general, I think a big idea here is it's a book about return. It's a book about renewal and revival, even. After a time of judgment in the history of Israel, Ezra opens up with a time of grace, of forgiveness and restoration. And right off the bat, we have this question answered for us is how is God going to do this? How is God going to give a rebellious people grace? How is he going to give these kinds of people forgiveness? And how is he going to restore a people who have been dead set against him? So that's where we, we open up the book of Ezra and in a sense, what we learn is that God is in the business of renewing in the hearts and minds of his people. He's about renewing a vision of his sovereign power and his covenant faithfulness. That's what God wanted for his people in Israel and the book of Ezra. And I think that's what God wants for us today. Like who doesn't need a fresh vision of God's covenant faithfulness or God's sovereign power? In a world like we live in and in our lives, and I, I know most of you, I think we all need this. So I think Ezra will be very helpful for us as we study. So I'm going to answer this question. Why would we study Ezra? I have a few uh, points here I'm going to answer this by. So why would we even come to a, a book like this? Well, first off, it's a neglected part of our Bibles. So when I said open up the, your Bible to Ezra, you're probably thinking, where is that? Um, People might have heard of the book of Nehemiah more often because they like to build buildings and have leadership talks. Ezra, uh, you know, doesn't have that necessarily, so they just kind of skip over Ezra and they go straight to Nehemiah. But it is true that all Scripture is breathed out by God, right? 
So if this is part of God's word, we must engage with it and study it. There's new things about God, particularly if you've never read it before. That's a great reason to study the book of Ezra. It's also important for us in understanding other books of the Bible. So uh, a bunch of them. So we'll just start off. It carries on the themes from Exodus. So we did a Bible study here on Wednesdays uh, this past spring in the book of Exodus. Many of you were there. It continues a lot of themes from Exodus. And we see that right off the bat here in chapter 1. So we see the priesthood of Aaron being brought about. So Aaron was Moses' brother. You might remember that guy. He established a priesthood. Uh, the instructions for building the original temple were there in Exodus. That's continued. The law that was given to Moses from God. All of these things are very important for the book of Ezra, and we see those things reestablished for this nation. So, Exodus. It's also a continuation of history. So, you saw that as I read. We're reading about kings and places like Persia and Jerusalem, and it's history. That's what we're reading. Ezra is actually the continuation of history from First and Second Chronicles. And in fact, you might recognize, if you look in your Bibles just to the next page, the last verses of Second Chronicles are the exact same words as the first verses of Ezra. So it's a continuation of history. And then Nehemiah is another book that is helpful to know and learn. It picks up the history at the end of Ezra. So it helps you understand First, Second Chronicles, Nehemiah. It also contains within it fulfillment of prophecies from people like Isaiah and Jeremiah. If you just flip through your Bible, they have large chunks in, the, in your text. Uh, there's a lot of prophecies within those books, and a lot of them become fulfilled in Ezra, of all places. It also recounts the preaching and, and ministries of people like Haggai and Zechariah. Those are probably other people you probably haven't ever read before, but they're in this book. And uh, Malachi actually comes. His ministry is, is contained in the events of Nehemiah. So all kinds of history here. Uh, lastly, you might recognize the story of Esther. Her story likely comes about between the chapters of Ezra chapter 6 and chapter 7. So if you want to understand Esther more, it's good to know this book. And it's also very likely that the events that are recorded in Ezra, Daniel could have still been alive during. So all kinds of biblical facts if you're a Bible nerd or if you're a Christian. Those are good for you uh, to know. So why not study Ezra if you're going to learn all these things about other books of the Bible? But finally... If those things didn't get you, I hope this does. The book of Ezra causes us to have a certain kind of hope. We read about a rebellious people, and even they have reason to hope. So the book of Ezra causes us, as we study it, as we read it, it causes us to hope for a kind of ultimate restoration that Jesus will bring about under his final reign. Jesus is going to bring about a restoration that far surpasses the restoration that we see here in Ezra, but it should cause us to hope for that kind of restoration to happen in us and in our world. It's going to happen, so may this book cause us to have a similar kind of hope. So why study Ezra? That's my argument for you. Um, if you have more questions or you're not qu quite convinced yet, um, talk to me later. So, as we approach it, we're still building our foundation. I want to give you just a brief overview of the book. Okay, so Ezra, generally what we see here is three big waves. And they're waves of return of Israel from exile back to their promised city of Jerusalem. So they've been in Babylon. 
It's a pagan city run by evil kings, and they've ransacked uh, their old city. So Israel is in exile, and what you have within Ezra and Nehemiah together are three waves of return. The book of Ezra covers the first two of those. So the first two waves of return are in Ezra. The book of Ezra is also structured in two big parts. The first six chapters, we see Israel's first return back to the city. In chapters 7 through 10, we see the second return back to the city. The first return is quite long. It takes about 80 years. So it's good to keep in your mind timelines as we read through Ezra. Uh, the second return in chapter 7 through 10 is only one year. So we got 81 years about covered in um, this book. In these two sections, you'll see a general pattern happen within Ezra. So it all starts with a Persian decree. So like we read here at the opening of chapter 1, we see this Persian king make a decree. Now, a decree, but it's on behalf of God himself, which is very interesting. But that happens twice in the book of Ezra. So after that decree, then you have the people begin to return back to Israel, and then they meet some kind of opposition. So you have a decree, a return, and then opposition. That happens twice in the book of Ezra. We're going to see those as we go. You might wonder who Ezra is and where is he at. He's not even at the first chapter yet. He doesn't show up until chapter 7. So hold your horses. Ezra's going to come. The main point of the book is this, or at least in my mind, this is what I'm telling you is the main point of the book. <clears throat> the sovereign hand of God moves kings and overcomes opposition to reestablish his covenant people in his promised place. The sovereign hand of God moves kings and overcomes opposition to reestablish his covenant people, Israel, in his promised place, Jerusalem. That's what Ezra is going to teach us. Okay? So that's a lot right off the bat. But I wanted to build a foundation so we have some kind of an understanding of what's going on. Because as you open up Ezra chapter 1, it's a little bit confusing. Like, who's Cyrus? Why is he making a decree? He doesn't seem to be a Christian, but yet he talks kind of like he might be one. So what's going on here? We've got to build a foundation before we can even understand what's going on in chapter 1. So that's our foundation. Now, we're set to build something. Okay, so we've built a foundation. Let's start building. This passage today, Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, is about the sovereignty of God over a pagan king to make decrees for the good of his people. God sovereignly is ruling over this pagan king to bring about good things for his people. So right at the beginning of Ezra, we're reading about a king who's used by God to, in fact, appoint his purposes, to accomplish God's purposes in the world. This is the very first step that God takes to return his people back to their promised place. So in brief, this is what our working through the passage is going to look like. And this is our main point of today. The Lord keeps his promises. The Lord keeps his promises. And we see this in three ways in our passage. First is by helping his people. Second is by fulfilling his word. Third is by reestablishing his worship. The Lord keeps his promises by helping his people, by fulfilling his word, and by establishing his worship. That's what we see here in Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. So first, he does, he helps his people. That's how he shows his faithfulness to them. 
So before we even got here to chapter 1, there's a history here. We talked about the history from 2 Chronicles kind of going into it. Uh, It's helpful for us to understand this kind of thing before we approach chapter 1. So that's what we've been talking about. And it's important for us to know it. It's important for us to know what the context is. So the question is, how did Israel get here in the first place? We know that they're in exile, but how did they get in exile in the first place? Well, really, the answer is quite simple. It's recounted in 2 Chronicles chapter 36. We're going to walk through that in just a second. But what we'll see here is it's the evil of their kings, and it's the rebellion of the people. So the chosen people of God have rebelled against God, both by their kings and the people themselves. They've both been united in their rebellion against God. Now, I'm going to walk us through. So if you have, if you have a Bible with you, this might be helpful to you. I'm just going to point to a few verses in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, because I think it helps us to see what's going on as we enter into verse 1 of chapter or of Ezra. So follow along with me if you can see. It's just one page over. So it might even be in your same opening section here. But uh, look first. We'll see in verse 5. This is a king of Israel. Look how he's described. It says, Jehoiakim did what was evil in the sight of of the Lord his God. So that's one king. Jump down to verse 9. You'll see another king. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king. He reigned for three months. Jump ahead. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. A pattern? Let's see. Look down in verse 12. We have another king called Zedekiah. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Another king doing what's evil. So those are the kings that becomes very clear to us as we're reading through this. Now our question is, what's going on with the people? So just jump down, look at verse 14 there in 2 Chronicles 36. It says, all the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And they polluted the house of the Lord he had made holy in Jerusalem. The people themselves are rebellious. Look over in verse 16. But they kept mocking the messengers of God. This is the people. Despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Now those are weighty words, right? This is a a particularly strong kind of rebellion that they have against God and who he is. Glance down lastly in verse 19. Look at what ultimately happens. God sends a king for destruction of the people. Look in verse 19, what they do. They burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. And this is the king of this pagan nation. He takes into exile in Babylon those who had escaped the sword. So how did these people end up in exile? It's because of their evil kings and the rebellion of the people mocking the word of God through his prophets, and they get what was coming for them as they rebelled. There was no remedy for their sin. Now, our first point is that God helps his people. But before God helps, there's sometimes that God, in fact, helps us by warning us. And that's true for us today, even as it was then. God helps us by warning us of things that are destructive to us. 
You know, I've had conversations with some of us and some of you in this room here who mention events in your life that take place that are particularly difficult, and you would tell me that these were wake-up calls in your life. Because of a sinful pattern of your life, it led to a certain event that woke you up. Sometimes those kinds of things are God, in fact, helping us, opening up our minds to see where we've been going wrong revealing our sin to us. And those, in fact, are God's help to us. I think this is part of what Philippians 2, chapter, Philippians 2, verse 12 means when Paul instructs believers. He says to work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. See, the suffering that these people were going through was a direct result of their sin against God. That's not always the, it's not always the case for us in our suffering, but sometimes it could be. But even in those times, we can recognize that God is helping us either to restore us out of that or at least to wake us up to the reality of what's going on in our lives. Even in times of suffering, we can work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it's God ultimately who controls all things, things that are going around us and things that are going on inside of us. So don't take the Lord's warnings for granted. His discipline is just like a father to their child, trying to direct them back to the path of life rather than to the path of destruction. So that's one way that God helps us. But this is something that struck me in this passage. As I'm reading this odd history in chapter 1, I'm seeing history about Cyrus and a king, and I'm thinking, how am I going to preach on this? So, like, what's the character of God here? And I think we get a clue, at least from the name of Ezra. The name of Ezra, in fact, means God helps. So in between 2 Chronicles 36 and Ezra chapter 1, we read about a God who helps. So it's an indication that God, in fact, is helping his people. But as we were going through 2 Chronicles chapter 36, look back there just for a second. I want to show you something. If you were God and your people were treating you as this text told us, how would you act? Think about that for just a second. Rebellion against you and your commands that you know are good for your people, and yet they are striking out every single person that comes to warn them about their destruction. But look back in verse 15 of 2 Chronicles 36 and look at the heart of God for his people. It says this, The Lord... The God of their fathers sent persistently to them by his messengers. God was not done with his people even when they were rebelling against him. He's persistent in his pursuit of his people. He goes on. Because he had compassion on his people and his dwelling place. Now I wonder if that is how you might respond to someone who's rebelling against you. God is the kind of God who has compassion for people who don't deserve it. God shows his loving kindness and is faithful to us, to us in that he helps us. He has compassion towards his people even when they're in rebellion against him. And that's all of us in this room. This is how the Bible describes our spiritual estate apart from God in rebellion against him. That's why we have a time of confession and prayer during our services, because we know that we are rebellious people. We need God to act for us. 
And we also need to be reminded of God's compassion towards sinners. And that's what we see here in his help. So before we get concerned about God's plan, what's going on around us, we must be deeply understanding of God's own heart. One commentator says, one can no more detach God's sovereign transcendence from his personhood than one can safely detach one wing from an airplane and still expect it to fly. So if you're flying an airplane, you need both wings, right? If you take one of those wings off, you've, you're going downhill real fast. The same way with God's sovereignty and his person. You must know God's heart as you know his plan. They go together. So God shows his loving faithful to, faithfulness to us by his compassion. Then we can begin to understand his plans in our life. So God keeps his promises, first by helping his people, but secondly, by fulfilling his word. And that's a big part of this opening chapter one. So look back in Ezra now, chapter one. We see in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah by, might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that he might make a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. You might not recognize this, but this is a direct fulfillment of his word. Actually, you would recognize this because he says this is done for the fulfillment of the word out of the mouth of Jeremiah. This is a fulfillment of words that came out of Jeremiah's mouth. And as you'll see in, Je in Ezra, there's all kinds of fulfillment because God is not done with his people even when they're sinning. Isaiah chapter 44 verse 28 says this. So you're wondering who Cyrus is? God has already determined what Cyrus is going to do several years before. This is what Isaiah 44 says. In fact, Cyrus is God's instrument. He says, the Lord says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. So Ezra is a direct fulfillment of what God said would happen in Isaiah 44. Cyrus is the Lord's instrument. He will fulfill all of God's purposes. See, we see here that God is fulfilling his words by working in history through a pagan king. Now, this brings into my mind a proverb in chapter 21, verse 1. It says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God is in control over the rulers of this world. And he turns their heart wherever he wants to. This truth, I think, should have a steadying effect over us. That is, if we believe this is true. If it's true that God controls the hearts of kings, of presidents, of rulers, that should steady us. How many of us are unsteadied by the political developments of our own country? Or about what our government is doing, just in general? Or if you're not a citizen of this country, are you concerned about the political developments in your own country? And do you believe Proverbs 21, verse 1? Do you believe this is true? 
See, our world is under the control of God. Everything that goes on, nations and governments and rulers, they're all under the sovereign sway of God. You see, our world's not under the sway of anyone named Joe, Donald, Vladimir, or Elizabeth. None of them control the sway of the world. God does. And we can have great confidence. In fact, even their hearts are under the sway of God if we believe what the Word of God says. That should give us confidence. And as Christians, it can give us a steadying presence in our world. We are citizens of another kingdom, a kingdom that's above this worldly kingdom, this nation that we live in. God is one who's ruling over everything. In fact, is holding sway over the, the ones who make decisions that affect people. God is controlling all things. I hope that can steady our hearts as we consider our news feeds. But notice how Ezra chapter 1 says God does this. He says he's doing this by the word of the mouth of Jeremiah. Jeremiah said that something would happen to Cyrus. We, we saw that in Isaiah, but it also happens in Jeremiah. So I'm going to reference another verse here. Jeremiah verse 16, chapter 16, verse 15. Jeremiah 16, 15 says this. So this is my question. Your word says Jeremiah's word is going to be fulfilled. Which one? Which verse is it that says is going to be fulfilled? Well, it's this one. Jeremiah 16, 15. It says this. As the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, God says this, For I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. This is many years before this actually happens. Jeremiah says, while these people are still in exile and while they're still in rebellion, you will go back to your nation that God has promised to you. So this is in direct fulfillment of Jeremiah 16, 15. But there's a familiar verse that I think a lot of us might recognize as I read it. Ezra chapter 1 is the fulfillment of this. Jeremiah chapter, tw chapter 29. I want to read this and see if you recognize it. For thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my purpose and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Have you heard that verse quoted before? This verse is fulfilled in Ezra chapter 1. So, we also read something about God's heart, right? These people were in rebellion. Again, we see God's compassion. You will seek me with all your heart. This is very clearly something that God's going to do in his people. God is going to fulfill his word by bringing his people back to their promised place. And this could also teach us about reading our Bibles. As we read Jeremiah, there's a lot of fulfillments that happen before we get to this day. So while it is true that God has plans for us, it is most directly true that God had a plan for Israel, that he would bring them back to a nation. So think about that as you read, particularly in the Old Testament. Sometimes we make a direct jump from the Old Testament passages and we directly apply them to us. 
God has a great plan for my life, and he's going to establish a nation for me that I'm going to come into. Well, we might not say that, but we know that God has a plan for us, right? So be careful when we're reading our Bibles. Actually, you'll see fulfillments as the Bible progresses. And that actually gives us more hope, as I hope we'll see. So the Lord is faithful by helping his people, by fulfilling his word, and lastly, by reestablishing his worship, by reestablishing his worship. This is what we see, the rebuilding of his house. So we see this more often or most clearly in Cyrus's decree, verses two through four. So let's look back at those. In these verses, God is reestablishing his worship. It's in fact in his house. Look at, back at verse two. So Cyrus makes this decree, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all kingdoms of the earth. He has charged me to build him a, a house at Jerusalem. So every time you read that house language, a little bit later we'll read that um, this is the house of the Lord. It's talking about the temple of God, where he would have been worshipped by his people, and also where his presence would have dealt, would have been, would have dwelt very clearly and tangibly. So in a sense, God is restoring his worship through rebuilding this house. That's what's going on. Look down near the end, and I think this is actually pretty compelling. Look at how he says this house is going to be constructed. So verse 4, he says, let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns. So the survivor is this remnant of God's people who are still alive after being in Israel. He says, be assisted by the men of his palace with silver and gold, with goods and beasts. So God's worship is being established, and notice how it's being established. These people are few. There's not many of them. Look at how they're, they're getting supplied. It says, by the men of this place. Presumably, these are just their neighbors that were all around them, pagans who do not believe in God. So somehow, God has worked in the heart of a king, and he's working in the heart of the people all around them to give them gold and silver and the things that they need to construct a house for the Lord. If you think something is beyond God's power to do, just read this passage. God is amazingly powerful. This happens in Exodus, as any of us who have studied that book before. When Israel was leaving Egypt, they were supplied with gold and silver and jewels and the things that were made in the country of Egypt. So as Israel was leaving Egypt, initially, they were supplied with gold, silver, jewelry, and all these kinds of things to construct a temple. Originally, that temple gets destructed. The people wind up going into exile again because they're rebellious and they're stiff-necked like God said they would be. And then he does the very same thing again. They get more gold, silver, jewelry from people. This reminds us that this is a second exodus, in fact. A second exodus is happening. I like the way this guy put it. He said, every instance of tabernacle, temple, erection, undertaken in the Bible, takens, it finds the edifice built of victory plunder. God's people are victorious. They use the plunders of their victory to build a place of worship for God. That's what's happening here. And friends, this becomes all the more compelling when we realize this is what Jesus has done, too. Jesus has entered into a world of rebellion against him. In fact, his own people didn't recognize him. He would live a perfect life, but yet still be rejected and mocked by the people of his world. And Acts chapter 4 says that kings, in fact, were used under the hand of God to bring about his sovereign purposes and plan. Let me read this. 
Acts chapter 4, verse 27, it says this, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, kings, along with Gentiles and the people of Israel. These people gathered against the holy servant Jesus. Verse 28, Acts chapter 4 says, All of these were to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Sovereign working of things in the world are nothing new with God. They were true for Israel. They were certainly true for Jesus. God had set up kings. He had set up peoples so that the sinless one would be crucified on a cross underneath the authority of kings. God held sway over them. He did all of that to effect salvation that we might be included in on this. Most of us are not of Jewish descent. Some of us might be. But because of what Jesus did, we can be included on the heart of God for us. So when we read that God had compassion for his people, we can recognize that through Jesus, that compassion is for us, for all who have responded to this Jesus by repentance and faith. That's the offer open to all of us today. Do you realize that God holds sovereign sway over even your life to bring you to this moment to consider, do I trust that God is working in history? Do I trust that he's working in my life that I would have to consider who he is, what he has done in living a perfect life, dying a sacrificial death in my place so that I might have eternal life with him? Have you ever considered that for yourself? If you're not a believer here today, this is your opportunity for a fresh start, a new beginning, a even better kind of vacation, might I add, because it's a vacation that does not end. God's compassion toward his people never ends. It's a vacation that never stops. I want to end with this quote. We're talking about the sovereignty of God in the world, in salvation. God using kings to move for his people. The sovereignty of God is something as Christians that might be mysterious, but I think it's actually this if we have eyes to see it. One guy has said that the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which I lay my head. If we believe that God is sovereign, we can truly lay our heads to rest at night knowing that we're not in control, but God is working out all things in the world, in our lives, for his great glory. So what's going to be your fresh start this fall? How will you have a new beginning? Might that be by responding, by repentance and faith? Might that be by engaging God's word even more deeply in the book of Ezra? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are kind toward us, that your compassion toward your people never ends, or that you hold sovereign sway over kings, and you, in fact, might use them to bring about good for your people. God, we praise you that you are powerful enough to do these things. And Lord, help us to trust that you are doing them even now. Lord God, as people in this room, help us to realize that we're not alone, that you, in fact, work for the good of your people in this world. And you work all things out for your glory. So Lord, as we consider your word, as we consider our own lives, 
we pray that you would give us a fresh start, give us fresh hope even, that you're working out a restoration of salvation in the hearts of those who would respond in repentance and faith. And you're working about a, a fresh start for us as a church. You're working on a fresh start for us as a people. Lord, help us to take a breath of fresh air and trust in your sovereignty. Through Jesus, we pray.